This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. Hi, this is Annie Grace with this Naked Mind podcast, and today I'm really excited about my guest because I got, um, I'm here with Amy Dresner, the author of My Fair Junkie, and I got Amy's book in the mail from your publicist, I think and literally devoured it. I mean, it was, I I was like riveted from page one. It is such, such a good read. And I think you're an excellent writer. And I just felt like immediately enthralled in your whole story. Um, It was, it was great. It's such a good book. Anyway, My Fair Junkie. And I, I'd love you to just share your story. So I I don't know if we can back way, way up and yeah, yeah, all right, let's back way up. I, that's that's how you found me. I was like, yeah. how did she find me? Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. Yeah, people seem to be like like reading it in like one sitting. It's like they're just like, I can't put it down. No, you, like, you can't put it down. You know, it's like I was um, ignoring my kids. And stuff. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I'm going to be up all night. I'm like, sleep. It'll be there tomorrow. Like, I, I mean, I meant for it to be like a, enthralling read and keep it going but I didn't want people to be like I can't, I'm not, I can't move you know so um okay so backing up uh born and bred here in Los Angeles in Beverly Hills went to like private uniform school my mom was like a hippie so I spent a part of the time in Laurel Canyon and then the other time uh with my dad in Beverly Hills he was a screenwriter comedy screenwriter and tv writer my mom was like a was a fashion designer, turned textile designer. Um, I'm an only child. My parents split when I was like two. Um, I have a lot of mental illness in my family. Woo! And a lot of addiction also. (laughs) So I sort of like the jewels, the family tree. Um, I was very, I was a total good girl in high school. I didn't smoke or drink or do drugs. It was basically I do this joke all the time. It's so stupid. I, like, again, I am a recovering comedian. I was a comic for five years and haven't done comedy since I, my, basically I got arrested. My whole life imploded. And then I was like more worried about sort of like surviving and not going to prison than I was about like, you know, telling dick jokes at 1230 <laughs> at the comedy store. <laughs> I was like, <gasps> um, but, uh, you know, my dad basically saw that there was, a, I was in school with a lot of really like celebrity kids who were doing like blow off the dashboards of their BMWs at 15. And my dad was freaked out. And he was just like, hey, I'll bet you'll smoke or drink or do drugs before you're 18. And I said, I bet I won't. And he said, I'll bet you a thousand dollars. And I was like, that, you know, that's how Jews raise each other. We just bribe each other. So I waited till I was 19. Um, I was obsessed with purity. I didn't smoke or drink or do any drugs. I was really, really into being pure, which is weird because then it's like went totally the opposite direction. Um, Yeah, I didn't kiss anyone until I was 18. And then I was 19 and I was at college and I was like, I'm so pure. And people are like, you're a freak. You know what I mean? And so I was like, oh my God, okay. So I was like, I need to like lose my virginity and start drinking and get with the program immediately. And um, so I did that. And, you know, my drinking didn't look different from anyone else's drinking. Um, It's college, everyone's throwing up and skipping classes and passing out and blacking out and it didn't look that different. Um, 
I mean, I just want to say that early, early on, like at like six years old, I felt weird. I felt different. I felt outside of, I felt less than, I felt lonely. I felt kind of just, you know, in all like pictures, like a fifth grade, everyone's smiling and I'm not smiling. Mm. Like I was already like really uncomfortable in my skin and like, you know, and I also went through really bizarre stages where like I wore a bow tie or like I'd wear all like army green. <laughs> They'd call me army Dresner. I mean, I was weird. I was a weird kid. Um, it wasn't, so I had a nervous breakdown at 19 in college. Um, I've had quite a few of those. I don't recommend them. What was that like? like I just, got really, really, really depressed and uh, became full-blown anorexic and bulimic for the next five years. And that's when I, you know, I've been in therapy since I was 13, you know, classic LA kid. Um, But I just crying and just like really took a dive. And then I had another nervous breakdown at like 23. Um, and then I moved to San Francisco. I was fired from like every job I ever had and, you know, for sort of being mopey and, you know, emotional. And um, I moved to San Francisco and I was like, I'm going to figure out who I am by figuring out who I'm not. So I'm going to say yes to everything that comes my way. And I was like, cause I, I felt like I didn't know who I was. And I felt like, you know, that maybe I felt like fear was driving my life. And so I thought, you know, maybe I want to perform or maybe I'm into drugs or maybe I'm into chicks. Like, I don't know. Like, let's just say yes to everything and we'll figure out what sticks and what doesn't. And that was very much a bad decision. (laughs) (laughs) I do not recommend that. (laughs) Um, You know, so enter threesomes and ecstasy and, you know, and crystal methamphetamine and, uh, the second time I did that, something clicked for me. And I just was like, oh, this is how I want to feel. Like, why aren't the psychiatrists giving me this stuff? Yeah. Like, I feel normal for the first time in my life. And that's when I found out that I had, um, that my mom had been addicted to amphetamines when she was a teenage model. And that my, my uncle had been addicted to amphetamines his whole life and was like homeless and schizophrenic. And so it was like very much in my family to, you know, that, that the uppers were the way to go but that was when I felt that weird like sort of vortex open up and I was like I can't get enough of this I want to be this I need this to be on the planet and to feel okay and I need it every day all day um thus started a 20-year battle with addiction and rehabs and suicide attempts and you know I'd get periods of sobriety and I'd you know eat it again and um it escalated as it does, you know, uh, I, you know, started shooting cocaine, which is a whole other dark bag. Um, and as you read the book, you know, I, I've, I have epilepsy from crystal meth use now, which is not super common, but not totally uncommon, but I do have all my teeth and it's LA. So who cares? Right? Like who cares? <laughs> I look good in a helmet. Screw it. But, um, yeah. uh, I've had like a lot of seizures and that's been something I've had to, I have, I have a seizure disorder now that I have to manage and uh, yeah, shooting Coke with epilepsy is really stupid. So I would shoot Coke in a bike helmet so I didn't crack my head open. Wow. Yeah. 
instead of like having a seizure and going, Hey, I shouldn't shoot Coke, you know, with epilepsy. I mean, you can have a seizure shooting Coke anyway, but it got really, really dark. And, um, there was periods where I just was like, I'm going to be a drug addict for the rest of my life. This is just who I am. And I'm not going to be able to get it together. Uh, but my parents never stopped believing in me. And I went to, like I said, six rehabs. Um, and I got married and <laughs> that didn't end that well. I, uh, I was prescribed, I was, I guess, a couple of years sober in that marriage, and I got, sorry, you can hear the trash behind me. Uh, um, I got something called frozen shoulder. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's like oh. something that... Yeah, it just sticks and like... Oh, basically. it's the most painful thing in the entire world, and it's something like like chicks in their 40s get, and it's like, I, I just would cry all the time. It's the most painful thing. You can't even move your arm. And they prescribed me Oxycontin and I thought, well, it'll be okay. Cause I don't really like opiates and it'll be fine. And it's a real pain problem. And, but pain management when you have an addiction history is super slippery and uh, the marriage was falling apart. And I just kind of went down into that hole of the, of the uh, opiate addiction. And uh, on Christmas, I, we were in a fight and something inside me snapped and I pulled a knife on him and threatened to stab him and he called the cops on me and I went to jail and I got arrested for felony domestic violence with a deadly weapon. And that was the beginning of uh, this whole different section of my life. So lost everything, ended up in a psych ward, tried to kill myself again, got back into rehab, a couple more relapses, and then went through the divorce and the criminal case and was in sober living for two and a half years, sweeping the streets on the chain gang. Um, and also doing a year of domestic violence classes and uh, went on medical disability, lost everything. And it's exactly what I needed because I'd been sort of an entitled sort of lazy princess, you know, it's like, I'm a Jap and everyone's gonna take care of me. And the universe was like, I don't think so, you know, so. Um, sweeping the streets was the best thing that ever happened to me and it changed me as a person and it gave me a work ethic and it humbled me and uh, gave me compassion I mean all the things I thought would never happen to somebody like me happened to me that's cool that's and um, I think that's sort of the message so you know and then as you know during the the sobriety I was just in a lot of pain I was in a lot of fear I didn't know how to live my life I'd never taken care of myself um going through a divorce and a criminal trial while you're trying to get sober it's a lot you know and being broke at the same time uh I got I developed like a weird sex addiction which I'd never had before and so I, I chronicled that in the book and that was really gnarly and mortifying and brought me to sort of a new low and then I sort of bottomed out on that. And uh, now I'm sober five years and I was in a relationship that ended last April and I'm not a sex addict anymore. I don't go to sex addict meetings, but I make fun of them in the book. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I wrote the book to help people. I wrote the book to, so that, I wrote the book for other addicts, recovering and not, to give them hope you know mm -hmm. it was like well if she can get sober like anybody can get sober and I wrote 
it for non-addicts to kind of get in our head and understand the thinking because it's really not about the substances. It's really about the feelings of self-loathing and fear and loneliness and everyone can identify with feelings. Mm-hmm. So people seem to be digging it and it's funny. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great book. It's a great uh-huh. book. So when, you know, in this journey, you know, when you finally were like, okay, that's it, this five year ago, Mark, and was it, was it different than the other times? Oh God. Yeah. This has been totally different. And yeah. so what was different? What was it about it? That was like, this is the thing. Like, how did you know it was <sighs> the thing? I mean, I'd had time before I've had like seven years without 12 step programs and all that kind of stuff. But, um, well, I lost everything. And so I had to start, you know, I really, I was sweeping the streets one day and I was feeling really sorry for myself. And it's like, you know, a hundred degrees and, you know, you're in a clean team uniform, sweeping literally poo on the streets. You know what I mean? And I was just like, I was like, is this my life? Like, I, you know, what happened? And I just thought this can be the best thing that ever happened to you, or it can be the worst thing that ever happened to you. And this is a result of, this is the consequences of your actions and your choices and your character and all of it. You can't be a victim. Is it all just, it's, oh, poor Amy. You know, I used to think I was dealt really a bad hand, but it was like, I got dealt a great hand and I played it really badly. And so I just decided I'm going to take full responsibility. I'm going to learn the lessons here. I'm going to take full responsibility. I'm going to accept the consequences and I'm going to really make a shift. And um, Plus, everyone was over my crap, too. I mean, even my parents were just kind of like, we're so done. You know, we're, you're, we're drained emotionally, financially. Like, we're tired of you at the bottom of the well. Like, it's, and so when everyone stops sort of, what's the word, rescuing you, you kind of have to rescue yourself. And, um, yeah. I just, I don't know, I guess I just had kind of an epiphany sweeping the streets. That's really cool. There's a, um, there's something this week that just, I never thought about blame in this way, but somebody said something and they said, blame is basically taking all your power and handing it to whatever you're blaming. Totally, exactly. And it's so weird to think about that, but it's true because you send your mind a message that this is somebody else's problem. So I don't have to act. I don't have to take responsibility. I don't have to do anything to change this. Right. Literally, when you blame somebody, you let yourself off the hook, and that means yeah. you don't do anything to change. Yeah, yeah. I was just really like, I mean, I really, I hate to sound so cheesy, but it was like, you know, I just thought, this is, th- I, I knew I was at a crossroads, and I just thought, you have to change everything. You really mm-hmm. got to shift what, because whatever you're doing is so not working. And um, I saw a lot of mentally ill and addicted people on the streets and it was so heartbreaking. And I knew that that could be me, you know, mm-hmm. except for the fact that my parents were just like, wouldn't let that happen or friends wouldn't let that happen and that I was just lucky. But I just, I was just tired. I was tired of doing the same thing over and over again. I was tired of being unhappy. I was tired of hating myself. I was tired of relapsing, you know, and I just, I just made a huge, you know, change. I think being self-supporting for me was a big, big, big shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like this moment of, I mean, what you're describing is very similar to, I think, my experience of just this moment of, all right, 
this might not be my fault, but this is my responsibility. Totally. Like, nobody's going to rescue exactly. me. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Like, oh, like, you know, it's like, you know, who, who, it doesn't matter who created whatever caused this genetics or, you know, anxious attachment to my mom or whatever, but it's like, it's my problem now. And, and, and to blame, and just to keep blaming people, I was just gonna, I mean, God knows what, you know, believe me, it was like, I thought I'd hit a bottom and then a trap door would open and another bottom and another, you know, I mean, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. I mean, four psych ward visits. I was just like, I don't wanna do this anymore. You know, I don't wanna relapse anymore. I wanna have a life. How do people have a, a real life? And I think that having grown up with money, like a lot of people like don't have empathy for people who grew up with money. Um, but I think it actually cripples you. Mm -hmm. And I found that it was, I didn't have to do anything for myself. So I didn't know how to do anything for myself. And then I believed I couldn't do anything. Mm -hmm. And so when everything got, when everything got, got pulled away, I mean, even if I was babysitting for $10 an hour or freelancing for different magazines, like I had a light under my, under my ass to like make money and support myself. I was on medical disability. I still am, you know? And it's like, it was just, it was a whole, I was like, I got to get it together. Um, and that's how you, and now I have self-esteem because I wrote a book and I got it published and I did it all on my own. Yeah. That's you know? so and I'd never done anything on my own. It was like, I did that. Yeah. So and that cool. creates a, a feeling of self-esteem of having built something for yourself, having done something for yourself, where before everyone had done everything for me. Right. you know, and taking care of me. And I was broken and I was into that. And I, and I use that label to manipulate people too. I'm so broken. I'm mentally ill. I'm an addict. Like, what do you expect? Like, I'm meh. And then I just got tired of that story. I just thought, drop that story. I don't want to be that person anymore. And I just changed everything. I mean, it's not easy, but it's doable. So what was the first step? I mean, not literally, but... <laughs> Um, being self-supporting, really trying to make my own money, um, being of service to other people, getting out of myself, stop focusing on me, you know, taking my emotional temperature all the time. Like, how do I feel now? How do I feel now? How do I feel now? I'd always let my emotions drive my action. And that had been a nightmare. And, uh, my emotions are very, you know, erratic and I'm usually quite depressive and self-destructive. And so... I started to do the action that I needed to do no matter how I felt. And that's so hard. Mm -hmm. And I still like, I used to like, because if you wait till you feel like doing it, you'll, you'll never do it. You'll never do it. You know, yeah. if you wait right. to feel like you're ready or you want to do, you'll just never do it. Right. You know, write a book, go to the gym, any of it. Right. And so I just started to just do what I needed to do, no matter how I felt. And, uh, you know, it's cognitive behavioral therapy and I hated it and I wasn't happy about it and I didn't do it cheerfully. I wasn't like, yay, you know, I was still really, Wah. but, um, you know, you take your, the action, the action changes your feelings. And that was huge. That was huge. Yeah. The action. I mean, I, that's so profound. I, I feel like that's something that we don't, I didn't know for a very long time that yeah. action can actually change how you feel and how totally. you think. Absolutely. And repetitive action can change your neural pathways and you become a different person. I mean, action really is character. It's like, yeah. no one cares what your intentions are. 
You know, once, right. I, sorry, I meant, no one cares. Either you do it or you don't do it. Right. You know, it was like, that was a big thing. I was really into my truth for a long time. I was like, well, that's just not my truth. And I had a sponsor once say to me, you don't have to be a good person. You just have to act like one. No one knows the difference. Oh, that's awesome. That's and so that's so true. I mean, I, I mean, and I was like, well, that's phony, but it's not phony because what matters is, is your actions and your actions define who you are and who the world thinks you are. You don't get a pass because of your feelings. And it's like, so that was the thing. I kind of hooked myself to the train of action and, you know, everything shifted. Plus I was really like in survival mode. Like I was like, I do not want to go to jail. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I mean, there was a big shift in priorities when you are done sweeping the streets for eight hours, you know, you're so tired. I mean, you know, you read the book that come home and like, you know, and it, it was like, it was just, it was so humbling. I mean, I, I was there and it was like 40 Mexican guys, like really tough looking and me. You know, I was like one of the few chicks there, one of the few white, you know, white people. And I was just like, oh my, and it was like, I need to just keep my head down and like fit in, you know? And they're like, I'm here for, you know, a DUI. What you here for, Weta? And I was like, um, I'm here for domestic violence with a deadly <laughs> weapon. They're like, oh shit, you know what I mean? Like I had more time than anyone. I had the worst, I was one of the few people there for assault. It was so gnarly, it was so gnarly. Like they have like, to, you know, such short, I had people, when I would tell them how much time I had, they're like, would you rob a bank? Like, oh my God. So. <laughs> that, the know. irony is so funny. You're like this skinny little girl. I know, <laughs> right? With my little like messy bun and my little broom. And I'm like, yeah. And they were just like, oh my God. Yeah. So, um, but when you're done, you know, and no one would talk to us. Ch you know, sweeping the streets on the chain gang, man, nobody talks to you. People think you're, you're a criminal. You have a shirt on that says clean team or business improvement center. And people know you're a criminal. And so only like, like drunk homeless people be like, good morning, you know, but everyone else ignores you except for like strange environmentalists who are like, I love what you're doing. How do I become a part of this like environmentalism? This is so great. <laughs> I'm like you just get arrested. It's really not that hard. <laughs> but you know, when you're, I mean, I was in my forties when I did it and it was so exhausting. Eight hours in the sun, sweeping, moving, you know, it's tiring. I'm not in the best shape. I'm a lanky desert Jew, you know, and worked out in years. And I would just fall into bed. I mean, I had leaves in my hair. My feet were like completely black, under shoes and socks. I mean, you're just covered in dirt. I got pink eye from the streets. And, you know, I was with in sober living in my 40s. You know, what a catch, right? Try dating. You're like, I'm, I'm doing a... I'm doing community labor for uh, attempted, for trying to stab my ex-husband and I'm in sober living at 42 and I have no job. You want to go on a date? You know, it was just so, but it was like, I was so tired and I just was like, okay, finish the community labor. Don't go to jail. Finish the domestic violence classes. Don't go to jail. Write a piece for the fix. Money. Like I was just based on, so like the basic, basic Abraham Maslow needs, you know what I mean? Wherein before it was like, oh my God, I want that Balenciaga bag. And how come that boy hasn't called me? Like I just, it shifted my priorities so fast. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, so. Brutal, but awesome. It's that yeah. like 
it's it's the moments in our life that are are the worst that turn out to be the best in this. yeah well that's the that's the the opening you know um quote in my book the will rogers and the best the worst thing that happens to you could be the best thing for you if you don't let it get the best of you yeah so and i was just like okay like i held on to that so tightly when i came across it you know and keeping my sense of humor too it was like all right let's laugh about this because otherwise we're gonna you know hang ourselves from the shower spigot like this is gnarly that's so yeah. important. I mean, and the science obviously backs that way up. You know, the yeah. laughter is just so profound and so good for you. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so where can people find your book? Uh, Amazon. In all, I mean, someone just wrote me from Vienna. So I guess it's already, it's in Germany. Sweet. Um, yeah, it's in Australia. It's on UK. Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's on the Target website. It's a Kobo uh indie bound uh skylight books you know but everyone seems to be buying it from amazon you know? that's awesome so um, i have um i have a question for you that i always ask every guest but if you could go back to the amy of you know imagine one of your your moments where you just didn't feel like because there's really three things you know i've been told and and it makes sense to me there's three things you really need for profound change, right? You need to know you must change. Like it yes. isn't a should anymore, it's a must. Yes. You need to know that it's only you that are responsible for it. Yes. But then somehow you need to know that you can change. Yes. And like that feels like the missing link for a lot of people because yes. it's like, I know I must, I know it's my deal, but I don't feel like I'm capable of it. So if you yeah. could go back and tell the Amy that didn't feel like she could change, like what would you tell her about what it's like now and about where she's got oh my god you you absolutely can change it's not easy but you can become the person that you you know you want to be um you know I, I really relied on the fact i was very lucky i believed that my parents believed in me mm -hmm. i kind of hooked into their belief they were just like we we think you're gonna get it together i'm like i don't i, I don't think it's looking good guys so you know it's like 20 years i'm not sure it's looking good but my mom believed she could get it together because my mom's 40 years sober and my dad believed I could get it together because his ego. He was like, you're my kid. You have to get it together. And what you're going through is so cliche. Ugh. You know, he was just like, it's so cliche. It can't even be true. Um, I believed that they believed. And I mean, it's tried to say, but I saw people in 12-step rooms who had, you know, been on Skid Row and then were, you know, in a business suit. And I just thought, you know, why not me? Yeah. And um, I don't even know that I, that I thought that I could. I just was like, I just thought I had to try because yeah. I was so tired and in so much pain and tired of trying to kill myself with drugs or alcohol or suicide or you know, I wasn't even sure if it would work, but why not really give it a go? You know, I think that's every other... action like built on that. Yeah, passion. you don't even have to believe it to do it. That's the other thing. It's like, that's, you know, just, just, you just do it. You don't have to be like, I think I can do this. Just fucking do it. Right. You know, and the more you do it, then you're like, oh my God, that's like, that was my, I mean, I didn't think I could write a book. I'd never written a book. So I think that's the whole thing is not listening to this, not listening to your feelings so much. Right. Not right. listening to what your head tells you, you know, whether you can or you can't, or you're worthy, you're not worthy. And it's like, 
you know, yeah, anyone can change, but it's hard and it takes consistent effort and you're going to have slip ups and that's okay. You know, I think the other thing for me, the big thing was to let go of shame. Mm. So yeah, just kind of like, let it be what it's going to be and, um, and owning everything really outright instead of being ashamed of it. Like when I was on the chain gang, I was documenting it on, on, on uh, Facebook every day I was posting it. And I was like, this is what I learned today, or this is what I saw on the streets or whatever. And people were like dying laughing. And so I had nothing to hide, like nothing to be ashamed of. Wherein other people that I was meeting were like, hey, we can be Facebook friends, but like, don't you know, tag me on anything about this. Like they would take lunch and they'd go outside and pretend they were on a business call. Mm-hmm. And I just completely owned it. That's my way that I deal with shame is I just go, well, here it is. Make your decision, you know, judge away. Well, that's what makes your book so powerful. You know, it's the vulnerability of the great human connector is being able to be vulnerable because then we're all like me too. I mean, that's one thing for me since I wrote that book is just like all the me too's. Everybody's in it too, you know, no matter to what degree or what extent, like we're all dealing with some sort of shit. Yeah. When I think that's the thing. We think our stuff's so unique or, or it's so dark or no one will, no one's done it. But it's, it's so universal. And the more specific you get, the more universal it becomes for people. And that's the response I've gotten from the book is people are like, thank you for being honest. Right. Like, thank you for being so raw and brutally, like just gruesomely honest. Like, you know, there's really embarrassing shit in that book. And I had a moment before it went out, before it got published. And I was like, oh, you know. Will I ever date again or will I become a cat woman? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. Am I going to be a cat lady? You know, it's like, <laughs> but um, there are so many people identified. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not the only one to perpetrate domestic violence. I'm not the only one to, you know, sleep with people that they didn't want to sleep with just because they needed to check out or needed validation. I'm not the only one who felt you know, at the hands of a compulsion, whatever it was. I'm not the only one who's felt lonely or self-loathing or whatever. And it's like, so I think, you know, I think if you're trying to look good in an addiction memoir, you're not being honest enough. <laughs> yeah. That makes a lot you of know, sense. And it's like, so I just tried to be as honest as I could. And I just thought, and I just, you know, literally the sex stuff was the hardest stuff to write. I remember I was like, I do not want to write that. Like, especially that one scene with the dildo, I was like, I do not want to write this. I do not want to put this on the page. And I just thought, I bet you that's, that's exactly what you need to put down on the page. As a writer, the stuff where you feel like, I don't want to show that, that's the, the most powerful stuff, you know? I think it's true. As a writer, I think it's also true just in general. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. if, if you're, I mean, even just if you're working out, right, and it's, it's hard for you, that's what you should push into. Of course. Right. That's where the growth is. Growth's not and, you know, in your comfort zone. Right. right. You know, and it's like, I mean, I say this all the time, that Jerry Stahl quote, I love it. He's like, if you had the nerve to live what you lived, have the nerve to write it. I was yeah. like, okay. <laughs> that's awesome. I was like, yikes. I, 
one of the ideas that was really profound for me about the comfort zone idea is like, oh, it's so scary to get out of your comfort zone, you know, and, and changing your drinking or changing, you know, giving up an addiction. Like those things are out of our comfort zone because hello, oh, we have to finally live without all the numbing that we were doing in the first time. place. And, um, but in anything, it's like you can move out and then you can always come like, I mean, it's a bad actually example because <laughs> you shouldn't come back. <laughs> but if you're pushing yourself like at any time it's always there <laughs> yeah. but if it's writing or whatever you know you can write it and then maybe crumple it up but then write it again or you know do right. you, yeah well you're killing like, like the editor but like for me I mean yeah I I really had not wanted to get out of my comfort zone and I really thought my feelings would kill me and that's the thing that I realized in sobriety in general was like hey feelings blow you know, they do like, I don't like feelings and, but they're not going to kill me. But what, what I do to numb them can kill me. Mm. And it's like, if you don't let yourself go through the discomfort of feeling a heartbreak or a death or whatever it is, a trauma or drama, like you never realize that you can go through that without picking up something to numb it. Mm. Yeah. You cry your face off. Yeah, you know, you binge flip, binge uh, binge watch on Netflix. Like, even sometimes now, if I feel overwhelmed, I'll just take a nap. Like that's my, I'm a napaholic. Like straight up, you know, I'll just go. I can't deal, and I just unplug. But I think that was the big thing for me was feeling like I always had to fix my feelings. Like I was like, I can't deal, I can't deal, I can't take this, I can't take this. You know, whatever it was, and realizing, oh, I can't take it, and it's uncomfortable, and that's okay. Yeah. And it passes the good and the bad. It all passes. Yeah. You no. Know? Yeah. It's really unfortunate that I feel like we're growing up, you know, our kids are growing up in a society. We're growing up in a society where we're just basically told from every angle that it's not okay to feel uncomfortable anymore. You know, and I think and everything's and everything's got like a label. Everything's a psychological. Right. Like if you feel any sort of. Yeah. You know, it's a syndrome. Or hyper or whatever. It's, it's a syndrome. Yeah. It's like life's uncomfortable. Life's hard. It's okay. You know, get comfortable feeling uncomfortable. That's life. Right. Exactly. You know, and like you said at the gym, like where that discomfort is, that's where the growth is. Yeah. That's you know? where to push into. Yeah. For sure. So what would you tell um, Amy about what it's, what it's like now five years? five years in what's life like compared to how it was i used to be a warning and now people think i'm like an inspiration which is really weird that's so awesome <laughs> you know what i mean i used to be like a warning of like and now people are like you're so inspiring i'm like what um i think that to be honest with you i mean i thought that this would fill that hole. And I don't know if you had that experience, but like it didn't, it didn't. Nothing outside fills that hole. And I'd heard that, but I was like, ah, oh, I'm gonna write this book and da da da, and it's gonna fill that hole. And I was like, oh. And that was almost like I hit kind of a depression after that it didn't sort of fill that hole. What has filled the hole is people going, thank you so much. Like you gave me hope. Like, right. thank you, you know. Um, and taking 20 years of, pain and horror and making it you know, something useful instead of just a waste of my life. Right. You know, um, I would say I have different, I have new problems now. It's like, you know, 
if once, you know, being a loser for 20 years, you're used to that. It's like, that's what you're used to. And there's comfort in that also. Like there, no one expects anything from you except more fuck ups. You know what I mean? Like, so um, when you have nothing to lose, you know, then it's like, there's nothing to worry about. And now I have different pressures and different things. And I am trying to adjust to someone with, you know, with the stresses of, of, a, of a life and successes and that kind of stuff. What trips me out the most is when people write to me and I write back. I don't know if you've gotten this yet. Do you write people back? Mm-hmm. Okay. Do they totally fangirl out and flip yeah. out? Yeah. It's right. It's like, what do you <laughs> like? It's just, I'm just normal. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm like, I'm thing. just a junkie that wrote a book. Like, calm down. Yeah. I'm not a slip. Like, I think it's so strange. I mean, I think it's amazing. I mean, I never have written, like extended myself to a writer and been like, your book really moved me. Like, I think that's so brave of them, but I think it's so weird to me. They flip, they're like, I'm nerding out so hard right now. I'm like, why? But I understand that they feel connected to me. And I understand that probably a lot of writers don't write people back. But I think it's important to, to do that. Yeah. Especially when you, you know, we're we're talking about people's lives and their sobriety and their sanity and, you know. And we wish somebody would have written us back when we, you know, if we would have reached out. It's like, I think it's important to maintain that personal connection when you write a personal book and to, and, and to stay grounded. It's like, I'm just you. I'm just like you. I just put it on paper. Have you had the experience yet where you meet somebody new and since they read your book, they know all about you, but you like don't really know much oh, about yeah. them? <laughs> it's yeah. like really It's awful. really weird, right? It's totally yeah. weird. You're like, oh yeah. And I, I'll tell them something like, yeah, I know. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> How do you know this? Oh, oh yeah. I wrote that in the book. I mean, that's, I mean, it's not fame, but it must be what it's like. Like, it's like a tiny bit of that, you know, like people, like what people think they know you. It's weird. And I feel like I know the books, like the people whose books I read, you know, I feel like, oh, very connected because it's such an intimate thing. You know, you're really bringing someone through. And that's obviously why we wrote them in the first place. But it is a funny feeling. Yeah, it's very, very, yeah. I had someone say, do you talk to other people that don't have a verified check by their name on Twitter? I'm like, what are you talking about? You don't even think about that. You know what I mean? It doesn't even occur to me. I just, I just got a verified check on Facebook and I didn't know what it was. And so I was like, what is this blue thing? Oh, I'll see if you'll write me back now that you have your verification. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. Um, but yeah, I think that this has been awesome. I mean, I feel like Number one, you make me laugh. You crack me up. It's tough stuff, and you keep your humor, and it's just beautiful. I mean, I mean, it's really cool, really cool. I think it is very inspiring. I think your book and your person and everything is just massively inspiring. It's so weird to hear. I mean, God, I was just like such an embarrassment for so long. It's so bizarre to turn it around. You know, it's like, but people. That's I. I I mean, I hope that seriously if I can get sober anyone can get sober like I was like the gnarliest fiend ever who shoots coke in their neck just because they saw some kid in rehab with a bruise on their neck and thought why not you know I just couldn't just like courting death it was so gnarly it was so so gnarly and it's like 
Um, yeah. So I don't know. I just, I think that there's some honesty needed in the recovery world, not just more of, you know, the PC preachy bullshit. That's what I try and bring, you know, awesome. I've gotten some, I've gotten some, you know, I don't know if you're on that train where people are like, well, we don't like the words junkie because that's negative and we like to use people with substance use disorder. And I'm like, that really would have sold books, right? My fair girl with substance use disorder. Like, I mean, I just, I'm not interested. I, th I understand that, that they're hoping that changing the vernacular will help change the way that people think. I think that's going to take years and years and years and years and years. I think, I think the more people that <clears throat> just talk about our stories and I agree. we understand that the more somebody can read your book and understand that what was happening inside your head, what was happening inside my head was not something to do with us being like shitty people. Yes. It was to do with how chemicals yes. affect our brains. Yes. And by the way, if you did as much of whatever, you know, substance, yes. did, it would be the same thing for you. Yes. And I think, like it, the more we can understand that, um, then, then that stuff will shift, you know? Yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree. The more people that, that come out are honest and the more people that are, you know, come out and say, Hey, I had this problem and, you know, and now I'm in the solution, you know, I mean, I've, you know, 5150, too many friends where, you know, the, the people in the medical field are like, once a drug user, always a drug user. And I'm like, wow, that's terrible that they think that way. Cause it's just not true. You know, I think we need to come out with our stories like, and, and like you said, shed light on it because it's really about feelings. And I think for me, I felt a huge biochemical thing. I can't talk about other people, but for me, it felt like a huge, there was a huge biological component to it. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, Gabor Mate is like, it's all childhood trauma. I mean, I think, I, I don't think we know enough about it yet. No, I mean, I, I'm with you. Like, I think our stories are somewhat similar in the sense that you are fully an adult, right? Same yeah. with me. Oh. Like, I was fully an adult before. Yeah. And, but I was also fully addicted to alcohol. And so it was like, that didn't happen because of some first sip at eight years old in my parents' right. Yeah, yeah, right, right. It happened because of alcohol. Yeah, it was because I kept drinking something that was addictive, you know, like that right. was very clear for me. And so when I could see that, I didn't have to like go back through. I mean, yeah, I had to deal with my feelings because I'd been numbing them for a long time, but I didn't have to go back through, you know, the old closets and the skeletons and the, all this right. stuff because it just, it didn't exist. It wasn't back there. I had a, I had a really nice right. childhood, you know? And so, yeah, that's the thing. It's like for some of us, there's that click right away, that, that hook for other people. If you do something addict, you know, an addictive substance enough, you'll become addicted. There's other people that are trying to block out trauma. I think addiction is really different for a lot yeah. of different people. And I don't think there is a one size fits all. That's why I don't like this sort of, you know, this way is the only way it's like, I don't think we know, know of enough about it yet. Yeah, I think we just need to just keep, <laughs> I know you <laughs> said our truth, you keep speaking our truth, except. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, that worked really well for me. People were like, God, you're an asshole. And it was like, you know, it's like your truth, no one cares. No one cares, but I mean, about this, they care. But right. what I was talking about, you know, it was like, well, I don't feel like going to that thing. And my sponsor was like, I don't really care how you feel. I was like, okay. Right. But um, I agree. I don't think that the words are going to change it. I think people coming out and explaining what it's like to be in here and yeah. also stories like mine, hopefully, like that it's not those people, it's everybody. 
Right. You know? Yeah. And like you, I didn't start at eight and I didn't come from a bad background or anything, right. you know? And like, I got all the bad repercussions. It's like all possible for you. Keep going, you know? So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Amy. This was awesome. I really enjoyed it. Oh, good. Thank nice you for having you. me. This has been Annie Grace with This Naked Mind Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can learn more at thisnakedmind.com. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe as it really helps us spread the word. Thank you.